the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program, another week bites the dust. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a radio program designed to answer your Bible questions. Uh, Whatever's on your heart and your mind, we'll do the best that we can, what we believe, why we believe it, uh, passages of Scripture that might be giving you some difficulty. Whatever we can do, we will do the best that we can. Here are our numbers. Now, we love your live calls. We've got some good questions today, but some of them are a little difficult, and uh, I'd rather you call and ask easier questions or comfortable questions. 340-9585 for your live calls. That's 340-9585. Or you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you every day the safest way to call is by using the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be able then to call safely, connected directly to our studio. Uh, One quick reminder, I'll try to remember this at the end of the show today as well, but Monday's a holiday. We will not be live on the air. We'll be doing a rebroadcast of a previous show. Um, It's a national holiday. Enjoy it. Have some fun. Keep the people in Houston, of course, in your prayers. Busy weekend for us. It always is the weekend. It's a time when the world is starting to unwind and we're just getting wound up. Um, I want to draw special attention to uh, our study tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we're going to be in Acts uh, verse chapter 2, verse 42, through the end of the chapter, just five verses. Uh, and I'd really encourage you to listen. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is we get so many questions on this program about uh, how do you know if you're in a good church? How do you find a good church? What's a church supposed to do? And what's my role in the church? And this is the prototype. This is the model that the Lord has provided for all of us. And too often, in fact, most churches just ignore this model and do um, whatever seems to be working to attract people. This is the model for church. It ends with, and the Lord added daily, such as those who are being saved. So rather than worry about getting people into the church, we do our job. And tonight is all about how and what church looks like and feels like. Uh, If you can't make it tonight, and I know certainly most of you cannot, but if you can't make it here tonight, uh, you can go to calvarysa.com and watch it live stream. It will be archived immediately following our service tonight, so it will be available for you uh, through the weekend. It's just one of those uh, pivotal Bible studies. It's that important a Bible study. It helps bring clarity to the mission at hand. So it's a good way to end the week. Uh, inviting you to join with us in Acts chapter 2, the end of the chapter tonight. For us, it's Communion Sunday. I know it is for many of you as well who whose churches do communion on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 here at Calvary Chapel. Wherever you go, 
uh, to church. Enjoy your time at the Lord's table. Um, enjoy the privilege of being uh, available for the Lord to be used to minister to the, the, the those among you who are lost and hurting and hungry and broken and needy and confused. Uh, it's a good time with all the things that have been going on in our world and especially right here in Texas. Uh, this is a time where you can be used as an instrument of peace and comfort to those who perhaps are not experiencing any. So all of that's going on here this weekend. Again, go to church. Have a great, great, great uh, Sunday with the family of God. Okay, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our first question, and it comes from our email inbox from Scott. He says, are the souls under the altar in Revelation 6-9 the same as the multitude in white robes standing before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and verse 14? Uh, Scott, my answer is some of them. Now, in uh, Romans, um, uh, or I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, those who are under the altar are those uh, who lost their life during the Great Tribulation because they refused to take the mark of the beast. Uh, they were beheaded for their faith in Christ, for their uh, unwillingness to recant their faith and to take the mark of the beast. So those are the tribulation martyrs only. And you'll notice in context in, in chapter 6, they're crying out how long. This is the moment when God's wrath begins to be poured out. Revelation chapter 6 is where the, the, the judgments in the Great Tribulation, the last seven years on earth as we know it, begin to take place. And those who have lost their lives are crying out as humans would instinctively cry out for justice. How long, O Lord, till you avenge our death? Now, they're identified for us. So, too, are the ones in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we're told this. Uh, John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In verse 14, uh, in answer to the question that one of the elders who were in heaven asked, um, uh, these men in white robes, who are they? Um, uh, verse 14 says, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So in Revelation chapter 7, uh, Scott, you get a much bigger picture. Uh, not just the tribulation martyrs, but these are the ones who are on the earth during the last seven years who somehow survived. They somehow resisted taking the mark of the beast, and they survived the Great Tribulation. Certainly, they're in the minority, but this great multitude comes from uh, every nation on earth, every language, every tribe. So it represents those throughout the entire world who survived the Great Tribulation and now are looking for salvation in Jesus Christ. So, Scott, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is another question. This one is from... Leonard from our email inbox. Leonard says, uh, and this is a statement I'm going to read. It's a little bit long, but it's it's good. Uh, he says, you cannot be saved unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in Jesus, accept Jesus into your heart, etc. Uh, he quotes John 3.16, Romans 10.9, etc. Salvation is through Jesus. Yet I believe that the lost tribes of the Amazon, the pygmies in Africa, etc., could spend eternity with God by believing there is a great design out, designer out there. Maybe they don't know his name, but they see his invisible qualities, Romans 1.20, and believe in a great God. I had a man argue with me that, no, the Bible clearly states that it is only through Jesus, through the name of Jesus, that we can be saved. And if someone out there doesn't confess Jesus as Lord, he won't be in heaven. I agree that, yes, Jesus is the only way, but I used those in the Old Testament as an example to counter that. And he said, no, that's the Old Testament. That's an entirely different covenant. After Jesus came, it's only through the name of Jesus. The Bible clearly says that. Uh, I didn't know what to say to that. Can you help me? Uh, I can, Leonard. And you're right, by the way, and, and your friend is wrong. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, and it's, it's not a completely different uh, group of people. They were under a different covenant, but remember, they were justified by faith in the Old Testament just as the same way that you and I are justified in the New Testament. 
you know, when you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you see all of those Old Testament saints who have been washed in the blood of Jesus now, who are now in heaven with him, they didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't know his 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 timing. They didn't know. Uh, they believed in him. They believed in a coming Christ, a coming Messiah. But they had very, very limited knowledge. Yet all of those people in the Old Testament who demonstrated great faith were justified just as if they never sinned in the same way that you and I are justified. Now, that's important. So God is eager to receive us. The Old Testament um, covenant was fulfilled by Jesus, and then we operate under a new covenant. Now, when we look at Romans chapter 10, and we say it is, uh, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart then that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't hear the name of Jesus. Now, here's a place where we have to understand, not only from Romans chapter 1, but we also understand uh, from the nature and the character of God. God never judges anyone, Leonard, based on what they don't know. We're all accountable before God, but we're accountable only for what we do know and never accountable for what we, what we don't know. So if the pygmy in Africa or if somebody uh, in, in, in tribes of Amazon, they're looking to the God of creation and they look at the sun, it comes up in the same place every day, it sets in the same place every day. If it rains in season, uh, if, if uh, they can see the consistency of a designer and they call out to that designer and they want to serve him, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that means that they could go to heaven without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Why? Because they believed in him even though they didn't know him. This is really important. The same principle works for those who have uh, diminished mental capacity or those who, who uh, are, are shut-ins, those who are unable to get out. God rewards people who seek him. And if we, because of the God of creation or even the God that gives conscience, Romans chapter 1 again, if we respond to what we do know, the difference between us and the old covenant is that God will reveal himself to us in a way that, that is sufficient for salvation. We don't always know what that way would be, but God will always reveal, us, uh, reveal himself to us uh, in a way that will result in our salvation. So, uh, Leonard, you're right, and the man you are arguing with is wrong. Um, let me go one step further on this, Leonard, because I think these kind of things are always significant. We have a tendency to look at, like Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's enough. But it's not enough. If to believe in your heart, that is to believe in him, but also to know him and be known by him. So it's not just words. It's not just the name of Jesus saves me. It's the person of Jesus that saves. And a lot of us who know all about Jesus, we're a lot more accountable than those pygmies because we make that confession but don't draw near to him. And so it matters a great, great deal, Leonard, that we surrender our hearts to him. We have to repent of our sins. If the, the African pygmy or the Borneo pygmy or, or somebody that's never heard the name of Jesus uh, looks at the God of creation, responds to the God of conscience and says, you know, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I'm going to stop. That is a person that we would say in a New Testament construct is saved or born again. And God, again, this is important, never judges somebody based on what they do not know it's only based on what they did with what they know. That very statement ought to terrify a whole bunch of professing Christians. So I hope that answers your question, Leonard. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. An anonymous caller uh, call into the station. The first question, can you address bitterness in marriage? how to deal with unforgiveness. Second question, Romans chapter 2, judge not that ye be not judged. Uh, when can we judge the sins of others? Let me do the second one first, Anonymous, just because that one's a little bit quicker. Um, when we point out somebody's sin, we're not judging them. We're simply identifying how they're living their lives, and we're saying that according to the Word of God, what you're doing is wrong. That's not judging them at all. We, we have no capacity to judge anyone's heart. And when somebody says, judge not lest ye be judged, 
Uh, and, and by the way, Jesus said that very same thing. Uh, we need to be very, very careful um, that, that we're not just being defensive, trying to justify our sin. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that somebody who's caught in sin should never, ever say especially somebody who doesn't know the Lord. So when somebody's um, steeped in pornography, they're cheating on their spouse, uh, they're getting drunk um, uh, on a regular basis, we can say in the Bible, when they're blowing their temper, getting angry, we can open the Bible and say, uh, the Bible says that the way you're behaving is sin. And they have no standing then to say, well, you're judging me, don't judge me. Um, Because we're not, we're just simply identifying their behavior and we're doing it because we love them. So people get defensive when you say you're sinning. They don't want to be judged, but they don't realize it's the Spirit of God that's judging them. It's the Word of God that's judging them. That's something they have to deal with. So we never have to be reticent in pointing out somebody's sin. We never have to say, well, you know, I don't want them to think I'm judging, so... So that's really important. If somebody's behaving in a sinful manner, it is our obligation it's our duty anonymous to point it out to them to do so in love to do so after first having examined our own heart to make sure that we're in right standing with God and then we are able to come to them on the basis of love and say you need to stop doing what you're doing now I went that direction because that's an easier question to answer but also because if there's any chance these two questions are connected um, before you judge the sins of somebody in your home, in this case a husband or a wife, um, unless you've dealt with the bitterness in your heart, in your marriage, unless you've dealt with the unforgiveness in your heart, you have no business pointing out the sins of anybody else's life. Judgment begins always in our own hearts. And so it's very important that we understand our hearts have to be right with God. Sometimes when somebody's acting out in a really unkind way, a a, a very obvious way, it's easy to point a finger at them and say, why are you doing this to me? You shouldn't be doing this to me. And yet in the same breath, we're holding bitterness or unforgiveness in our heart toward them or toward somebody else. The professing believer, Anonymous, is the one more accountable to God. Jesus talked it talked about it using a log and a speck. The believer is always the one with the log in their eye going speck hunting in the eye of another. So that's important. Now let me address bitterness in marriage because it's certainly something that we have to deal with. Bitterness is one of the devil's favorite tools. It can happen with unforgiveness refusing to forgive it can just be letting your anger letting your anger get out of control it can be holding on to something that somebody's done to you or some thing they're not fulfilling that you think they're obligated to fulfill bitterness will destroy you and it's a sin that's so deadly that it'll give the enemy a foothold and he without mercy will try to destroy. So your sin, being bitter, holding on to unforgiveness, is the most serious thing in your life. You know, we have a tendency to hold on to our unforgiveness. We have a tendency to hold on to our bitterness because it makes us feel good in some perverse way. But it, it you know, what people, the things they're doing to us are the things that we can say, well, I would be this way if it wasn't for them. But you've got a God who died for you. You've got a God. Your marriage has no hope of getting fixed. It's not the other person God's going to work on. It's going to be you. And I've said this so many times in this program, but we have a tendency to focus on the other person instead of focusing on us. Jesus will never talk to you about another person as long as he's got this work to do in you. So bitterness has got to give way to joy in the Lord. Bitterness has got to be, give way to the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. If you hold on to bitterness, if you hold on to unforgiveness, you will become harder and harder and harder in heart. And I've seen people get to the point where they're unable then to respond to this 
pleading of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we learn to manage it. We think we're okay. But we're never okay. So it has to be dealt with, but it's the issue of the one who's bitter. It's the issue of the one who's holding unforgiveness. Until God can work in your heart, he can't work through you to win the one you're angry or bitter towards. Anonymous, I don't know if you were able to listen to yesterday's program, but Paul addressed this in, in large part um, on our show yesterday. Um, in response to a question, somebody wanted to know how she did it, you know, for all those years. Um, she prayed for me for 13 years, and while that sounds so wonderful and heroic, and believe me, Paula is a hero to me, um, she confessed yesterday that the first 10 years of her praying were praying only that her circumstances would get better. That's not a prayer that God can answer. God wanted to make her into the, 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 the instrument he could use to save me. God was trying to prepare her for what he knew would be true, that she would be a pastor's wife. An unthinkable thing during those first 10 years anyway that she was praying. And finally God had to deal with her heart and her motive. So whether or not you're the bitter one or the unforgiving one, anonymous, whoever is guilty of those sins has got to, and I mean they have got to, let God deal with their heart. In His presence is the fullness of joy. And unless we understand that, we're never going to be prepared for the work God wants to do in our spouse. One of the ways that the bitter or unforgiving spouse who is a Christian can help the Lord win their husband or their wife is understanding that your mission becomes the mission of an evangelist near your home. First Peter chapter three. You can you can be God's arms, you can be his heart. You can be the one who dies to your flesh every day. And you can do that in order that the one that you're angry with, the one that you're holding unforgiveness toward, can be saved and join you forever in heaven. But it's not something that can be put off even until tomorrow. This is something that has to be dealt with today. And even asking the question indicates that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. Just understand that He first works on you before He works on the one to whom you are are, are, are angry or unforgiving toward. Now, let me say one other thing about this. We're inside four minutes, just a little over three minutes for this half of the program. For Christians, husbands and wives, who allow bitterness and unforgiveness to creep into their marriage, you're breaking Jesus' heart. It is a tragedy in the Christian church, especially in this country. It's the only place that I minister. So it is a tragedy that so many of us are willing to settle for these terrible marriages. It's a tragedy that we're willing to be lukewarm. Oh, this is just the way it's going to be. There's nothing I can do. Here's what I always tell people, whether it's in marriage counseling or when I'm teaching the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. In a marriage like this, one person who claims to be a Christian needs to step up and start acting like Christ. One person taking that first step of obedience, that first step of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, will be the one that God is able to use to win the other and to redeem a marriage that is bringing um, shame and embarrassment to Jesus. We all too often look at ourselves as the victim and somebody else as the perpetrator. God is looking in Christian homes for one person to stand up and finally say, I'll start acting like you, Jesus. I'll do for him or I'll do for her what you did for me. I'll cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'll cry out, forgive seven times, seventy times. If we'll be that man or woman available to God, I promise you, I promise you that you're on the verge of God doing a miracle in your marriage. 
All we have to do is be available to be used. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you very, very much. To every Christian, please, 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 don't be willing to settle for less than what God has for you. Don't be willing to settle for less than His best. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we should fall in love with the people He loves. When we're disappointed, it's because we have expectations of people. Instead, our responsibility is only to turn to Him. Only Jesus can fulfill your needs. Only Jesus can satisfy your broken heart. That's what He does the best. I promise you that He'll do it. I promise you that He'll do it. So, Anonymous and others, I've got some other marriage questions that I might get to in the second half of the program. We'd love to have your live calls in our final 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585, 340-9585, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and you're listening to the Word to Stand in for Life. Um, we just want to help you fall in love with Jesus. One more time, 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question from henry uh he says pastor ron what is the difference between the natural man the spiritual man, and the carnal man. Henry, you've been reading First Corinthians, haven't you? Uh, the differences are significant. The natural man is the unsaved, unregenerate man, the human who doesn't know Jesus, uh, the human that, spiritually speaking, is dead. Uh, the natural man is the one who just relies on what he knows and what he can see uh, rather than, than needing any faith in any unseen God kind of thing. So that's the natural man. The spiritual man is the born-again Christian, the one who has the Spirit of God. Jesus said, if you have not the Spirit of God, then you do not belong to Him. So it's very simple. The spiritual man is the regenerate man or the born-again man. Um, that's the person who says, no, I'm going to walk by faith instead of by sight. Completely opposite the natural man. The carnal man is uh, a really sad case. The carnal man, and Paul is writing to carnal Christians in Corinth, are those who are real believers but who live more like the natural man than the, than, than the spiritual man. They're the ones who walk in the flesh. They're the ones who who uh, buy the lies of this world. They're the ones who are too lazy spiritually to, to dig into their Bibles and find out what God has to say about whatever the circumstance they might be in could be. Uh, they're the person who argues and does whatever is in his or her best interest. That's the carnal Christian. The one who dabbles frequently in sin and thinks, oh, God will forgive me. That's carnality. Now, unfortunately... The carnal Christian and the natural man often look exactly the same, and it's hard for us to tell which is which. That's why what we do as Christians is we always approach them based on how they're living. Not what they say, but how they're living. If someone who is living a, a, a continually sinful life says they're a Christian, I'm going to say, what makes you think so? Don't judge me, they'll say. It's okay, but you're living like somebody who isn't born again, so why would you think you're a Christian? I really want to know. The carnal Christian is the the man or the woman who has no time for God, really. Doesn't make time for God, I should say. The, the man or the woman who spends their money on what they want without asking God what he wants them to do with it. Uh, the man or the woman who uh, can watch things that are, are inherently evil, wicked, whether it's television, movies, pornography, whatever. The person who gets drunk once in a while and says, there's nothing wrong with partying and having fun. That's a carnal Christian. So, Henry, I hope that answers your question. Here is Wes on line one. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Um, good to hear your show as usual. I uh, really enjoy it. Uh, this is on uh, the new birth, the rebirth of a Christian. Um, 
I've learned that we're three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. And when we have received Christ, when we are reborn, we, uh, from what I've learned, have received a new spirit and that we have received God's Holy Spirit and that we are sealed in that. And my question is, this new spirit uh, that we receive, that we are our three-part beings, that we're spiritual, that we have a spirit being, um, and is that, uh, you know, how does that take place at the rebirth? Is that something, you know, in, in Adam, we spiritually died, I believe, uh, when sin came into the world. Um, I'd just like to get your take on what happens when one is born again. Okay, I can do that, Wes. Thank uh, you I'll very hang much. up and listen to that. Okay, thank you, Wes. I appreciate it. Great call. A um, couple of things, uh, Wes. If you if you want detailed teachings on this, we have been. I shouldn't say we. I've been pounding our church here at Calvary Chapel uh, for months now through uh, the Book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter eight, where we're just through this this battle that you're describing between spirit and flesh. Um, um, and at CalvarySA.com, all of that information is free. Uh, and you can watch or listen to uh, the studies that we have been doing uh, on on this very subject. Here's what happens. One thing that you did say: through Adam we died, uh, but 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 we died when we became sinners. Jesus said we're condemned already because we're born with the sin nature, but we're actually convicted and sentenced to death the minute we sin, and we're aware of it. That sin nature is there, but when we sin, we do what we know we're not supposed to do. That's when the gavel comes down and our death sentence becomes permanent. The only way to deal with this is what Jesus said uh, to um, uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus was a very religious man, perhaps the most religious man in Israel. He was Israel's prime teacher. There's a direct... direct article um, in in that passage. He's the teacher for Israel. And when uh, Jesus says, you of all people should understand, except a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So Wes, here's what happens. I want you to picture Jesus. Post-resurrection, he's with his disciples. He's promised them that the Holy Spirit is coming. And he breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now he told them to go into Jerusalem and wait. And they waited. And 50 days after that moment, the Spirit fell in power. But they were born again, our New Testament term, the moment Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Before that, they belonged to the Old Testament covenant. They believed in Jesus by faith. They were justified by faith, just the way Abraham was justified. But everything changed in that moment when he leaned over and breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. He was breathing life into that which was dead. And by breathing life into that which was dead, he was giving them life. And the result is they too were born again in a spectacular fashion that is a one-time-only event, uh, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell upon on Peter, and he preached this message, and then the same day, 3,000 people were saved. What happens is, Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't mean our sin nature goes away. We're still stuck with these flesh and blood bodies. But we have a greater power in us, the power that raised Christ from the dead. First John says, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so we have this power in us that can overcome our flesh. So the battle is still there. The flesh, the sinful nature, still is tempted, still wants to sin. Paul says, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Well, for the born-again Christian, the answer is the same for us as it was for him. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And when we decide to say no to our flesh and yes to God, it's so pleasing to God, this, this, this whoosh of power comes. Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And because we're born again, 
we can defeat the power of sin in our lives. It means we no longer have to sin. We still may choose to sin. We may uh, fail at times, but it's not because we have to. The, before we're born again, Wes, we, we didn't even care whether or not we sinned or not. We didn't consider what we were doing as sin. I mean, when we talk to, to somebody who is a homosexual and we say that, that what you're doing is sin, it angers them because they don't consider what they're doing sinful. Now, in their heart of hearts, they know it. In their mind, they know it. But they've been so convinced in this world that it's okay. Well, when the Spirit of God comes in us, when we're born again, we become aware of those things. And I've said this many times, I'll say it again, when the Spirit of God comes in a Christian, when we're born again, there has to be change or it isn't real. We're not saved by repeating a prayer, we're not saved by coming forward in an invitation or even going to a, a water baptism. We're saved by the transformation of our heart. And Wes, that's what being born again is all about. So. The old is gone, the new has come. The things that you used to do, Jesus said, repent, that's a turnaround in life. The things you used to do, you don't want to do those things anymore because you'd rather do stuff with Jesus. Again, the struggle will be there. But the important thing to remember is that we can always win that struggle because that power now lives in us. I also like, Wes, that you indicated uh, uh, that, that he comes and he seals us. He seals us forever indicating that we belong to him, that we're his, guaranteeing our inheritance in him to come. Now, that's enough reason to say no to, to sin, to say no to our flesh and say yes to Jesus. Except a man be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, he will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Thanks, Wes. Appreciate the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's an interesting question. It's kind of connected to the next one. Both of them are anonymous. Uh, I don't know what he or she's getting to here, but uh, Pastor Ron, how does Paula know where you are all the time? How do you account for your time? Um, maybe I'm just boring or maybe I'm just easier than most, but I, I can't drive. Um, most of the time she knows where I am because she's with me or she's taking me somewhere. Um, but uh, I can tell you, uh, uh, I think without any equivocation at all I want to be I want to be sure for a moment before I say this uh, I th I'm pretty sure like 99% sure that Paula knows where I am 24 hours a day she always knows how to get a hold of me she always knows where I am and what I'm doing uh, there are no secrets um, so so I never have to account for my time um, she's my best friend I want to be with her um, I hope she wants to be with me. I'm pretty sure she does. Uh, but but I, I just it's just not something that we ever worry about. I mean, there's there's just no possibility of jealousy or or suspicion or anything like that. When li lives are lived in the light of Christ, um, you know, people we're not thinking on what Paul is doing or when who she's talking to. I don't check her phone. I don't uh, ask who she's talking to. Those kind of things. Uh, I know her, and she knows me. So. Uh, the answer to that is we don't really have to account for our time for one another. And and she does know where I am all the time. Not how does she know. It's just that she knows uh, because our lives are an open book with one another. No secrets. Um, it would never occur to me that when she's at home while I'm here at the office during the day or when she's out meeting with people or counseling people that they're up to no good or they're up to trouble. It would never occur to me to think that. So... Uh, that's the best I can do with that question. The, the semi-related question, also anonymous, said, My husband wants to be with me all the time. What do I do when I need time just for me, time when I can be alone? Uh, I think the first thing to do is to thank God that he wants to be with you all the time. I think we have to remember to be grateful. There are a whole bunch of women anonymous who wish their husband wanted to be with them and their husbands, for one reason or another, simply aren't with them or out doing other things. Um, uh, th that your husband wants to be with you is really a good thing. Now, here's the thing that I want to address. What do you do when you need time just for me? You don't get that. You don't have that right. Now, if you're alone, you need time with Jesus. 
And we all need that time. So if your husband wants to be with you and you want to take a walk and be with Jesus, just sit down and say, I'm going for a walk with Jesus. I need to be with him right now. And believe me, you'll be grateful when I come back that I did. And then make him grateful. But, you know, we don't need time just for us. We don't need to get away. We don't need to be alone. We should never be alone. We should always be with Jesus. And Jesus, when you're with him, he's going to lead you where other people are. I think sometimes we forget how blessed we are. When your husband goes to work, read your Bible. Talk to the Lord. As I said, take a walk with him. Jesus is the one who will fill that need for you. But time just for you, I don't know what you mean, what you want to do in that time. But if you're with Jesus, he'll take care of whatever deficiency you think exists. Because he'll fill your heart so full. He'll fill your heart so full. One of the things that I have encountered a lot in Christian marriages is people who love each other. They really do. They're committed to staying the course, but they don't really like each other. Um, that, that That's just something Christians shouldn't be guilty of. You should have Jesus' heart for your husband or if it's reversed, for your wife. And you'd be friends. I, I don't know what my life would be like if Paula wasn't my best friend. I have lots of friends, but but she's the one that I want to spend time with. And if there's that day you're having a bad day, that day you're struggling a little bit, if he's your friend, you'd be able to say to him, you know what, I really need to get some time, just me and Jesus. Paula knows every day that it is vital for me to take a walk with Jesus. Every once in a while, she'll say, can I walk with you? And the answer is always, of course. But most of the time, she would not even suggest that simply because she knows how important that is. I leave the house. She says, I I tell her, I'll see you in a few minutes because I'm going to go up to the gym and I'm walking. She drives up and she says, I love you. Be careful because she knows I can't see. But she knows how valuable that time is for me. Without that time, I'm not going to be a good husband. I'm not going to be the pastor he wants me to be. So, we're dead people walking around. Dead people have no rights. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Remember that you're a servant of God. And maybe, just maybe, God wants that you should minister to your husband. Now, if your husband wants to be with you because he's jealous, that's another issue. You guys together go talk to your pastor. But your alone time is Jesus' time. And when he fills you with himself, you're going to want to be pouring yourself out to minister to others, most especially the one who is closest to you in your home. Thanks very much. 340-9585. If you're alive, call some questions. Uh, Here is an anonymous question that's kind of mean-spirited. Why don't big churches like yours do more for the people in their community instead of spending on missions overseas or spending money on big buildings? Anonymous, two things are clear. One, you've never been to our church. You have no idea what we're spending our money on. You have no idea what God's vision for our ministry is. And if you are a professing Christian and this is your attitude, you need to repent. You need to repent. Uh, our church is not a big church. I mean, we're, we have a lot of people. Uh, but, but we've got a very small plant, a facility. That's why we have to have four weekend services and a midweek service. That's why we have a men's and women's Bible study on Monday nights and a youth Bible study on Monday nights. It's why we have little smaller studies like our foundations uh, class and Spanish-speaking Bible studies on Sunday because we don't have enough room. We can't, we honestly can't fit anybody else in our church. So while it's true we have a lot of people, um, we don't have a big facility. It's certainly not a lavish facility. <laughs> if you've ever, uh, if you ever just want to stop, I'll, I'll show you around. Come in and, and tell them you're the anonymous who called the radio and I'll give you a tour. Uh, uh, we've got the tackiest building in the world. We don't spend any money at all 
on 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 a facility that's gaudy. Um, we're just lucky that we have a place to meet. When churches spend money overseas, most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, anonymous, it's because that's the mission God has given them. Our mission, uh, our vision is not for missions, um, but that's just God's vision for this church. But many, many, many churches are wonderfully active in supporting missionaries. They're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're fulfilling the Great Commission. And I think that's important work. As for doing for communities, most churches, especially if they're big churches, are doing more things in the community than you can possibly imagine, things that they never ask uh, for for uh, thanks for, uh, things that they're almost never acknowledged for doing. So I think you need to ch- check your own heart. It takes money to run a church. Again, for ours, Guido said a long time ago, his ministry, as his mini, money rather, for for ministry here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, just our church, is not for mortgages. It's for ministry. And by that, he he meant very clearly that we're we're not to take out a mortgage on a place. That's why we've been stuck in this same building for 20 years and yet the amount of money that a very generous body gives and by the way anonymous at this church we never ask for money we never let our needs be known and yet the work that's done through this this church is overwhelming we have a free school k through 12 that's a community service not just kids from our church but kids from other places kids we have kids here who, whose parents go to churches that are big and wealthy, but they can't afford to pay the tuition for their private school. They come here because they can afford our tuition because we don't have any. We've been doing that for 18 years. We have to serve this community. A free doctor's office, a family practice doctor's office, husband, wife, doctor team. And everything is 100% free, and all of that is supported by the ministry here at Calvary Chapel, the generosity from the people that go here. We have a house for women who are in abusive or dangerous situations or women who just sometimes got in some trouble and they're trying to get grounded again in life and get a, some direction. We've got a house that we support where we can send those ladies and in some cases their babies. There's so much ministry that goes on uh, in October, October 28th, Anonymous, I challenge you to go down to Travis Park. Travis Park's been in the news a lot this week. Uh, go to Travis Park and watch the ministry that unfolds before your eyes there. You won't believe the amount of ministry that goes on. So, Anonymous, you need to change your attitude. If, if you're, if you're uh, not a Christian, I understand that. If you're not a Christian... This anger in your heart is perhaps God knocking at the door of your heart saying, I love you. And maybe you're closer to becoming a member of his family than you think. If you are a professing Christian and you're just bitter about, they always want money, they always want money, you're going to the wrong church. So don't blame churches for the abuses of a few. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. How are we doing on time? We've got about four minutes left in this half of the program. Uh, Jennifer wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, Christians seem to pick and choose uh, the scriptures they follow. For example, why do some churches have women pastors when the Bible says it is not to be so? Uh, Jennifer, uh, not, not just churches, but all Christians do that. There's things that we, we, we like doing. We know they're wrong, but we like doing them anyway. Um, but there's, there's, you know, what, what else are we going to do except we either obey or we don't obey? So the real reason that we pick and choose from your perspective is that we're sinners and we're not yet perfect. 
Uh, I can tell you that the, the reason churches have women pastors when the Bible says it's not to be so is that they don't care what the Bible says. It's easier to be politically or socially correct than it is to be biblically, biblically correct. That's just the carnal Christian that I was talking about before. It doesn't mean that women aren't good Bible teachers. We are gifted here at our church with marvelous Bible teachers who are women. My wife is one of them, just one of many. But when we settle for doing something the politically or socially correct way instead of the biblically correct way, then we're the ones who are getting ripped off. But it happens all over. You know, we talked in the program a little bit yesterday about Christians who are always pointing fingers at homosexuals and yet think nothing of divorcing wives one, two, three, even four times. We pick and choose. That's what carnal Christians do. And Jennifer, for you, um, don't look out at what others are doing. Instead, focus on your own personal relationship with God. Enjoy the fact that when you're doing the right thing, He's pleased, He's proud of you, He's, He's protecting you, and He loves you. And don't get thrown off because of the choices that some make. Instead, rejoice along with Jesus. Rejoice along with Jesus because of the choices that you make. And what will happen is God will use you to convict some of the others. So, Jennifer, I hope that answers your question. God bless you. I appreciate the, 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 the heart behind that question. Uh, we're coming to the end of the program. I want to remind you, Monday, because it is a holiday, uh, we will not be live. We'll be airing a rebroadcast. I want to remind you to get to church this weekend. Be his arms. Be his heart. Look for people that are hurting. And be the answer. Be the one that provides comfort and encouragement. Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. Acts chapter 2 tonight. CalvarySA.com at 7 o'clock. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're listening to the Word of Standing for Life. We'll see you on Monday, God willing. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.